Well, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. I hope we can share some information that will be helpful and edifying for you. Since we have finished now uh, showing when all the New Testament books were written, I wanted to look this time and probably the next couple of times at the issue of canonization, uh, how our New Testament books were formed into a canon of Scripture. We'll be departing temporarily from our historical discussions that we've been having in the past for a few weeks so that we can explain how the apostles wrote, copied, circulated, collected, and certified the 27 books of our New Testament. Conservative evangelical theologians call this theory that we're looking at apostolic canonization. And we want to explain what that is and show how we as preterists need to be the champions of this theory of canonization. Because we're the only ones who can really consistently take a position like this. So we're going to be dealing with that this week as well as the next couple of weeks. And we want to show how the apostles put together the canon of our New Testament and certified it for us in the first century before all of them passed away from the earthly scene. So, let's get right into our study of apostolic canonization. I do want to deal with how all these New Testament books were written, the order in which they were written, and the date in which they were written, as well as how the apostles collected those writings and certified them as canonical and authoritative. In other words, uh, Apostle Peter was given the keys of the kingdom, and that means he was going to be the one who would be the first one to open the door to the kingdom. He had the keys, and we see that in the book of Acts. We see Peter exercising those keys. He was the main spokesman on the day of Pentecost, which opened the door of the kingdom for the Jews. And we notice also in Acts chapter 10 that he was the one that God spoke to to go down to Cornelius' house and open the door of the kingdom for the Gentiles. So Peter is the key man. Uh, You know, that's play on words, but but he literally (laughs) is the key guy among the apostles uh, to open the way. And and he was also told not only that he had the keys of the kingdom, but that he would be able to bind and loose, that whatever he bound would be bound in heaven and whatever he loosed would be loosed in heaven as well. So, uh, you know, that's that's something that us Protestants have not thought an awful lot about, but which the Roman Catholics, of course, make an awful lot of fuss over. And I think we need to, to take a look at that because as preterists, I think we have a very good answer to to this whole problem of apostolic succession and how the New Testament apostles uh, formed, collected, wrote, and developed that canon within their lifetime before they passed away. Preterists don't often really think about it, but we are uh, in danger of being inconsistent on the writing of all New Testament books. You know, we're very quick to say that they were all written before 70 A.D., but we don't think about the implication of that. For instance, uh, and, and this is where it really gets down to some difficulties, is in particular uh, the, the writings of Apostle John. You know, all the, the rest of Christianity, even conservative evangelical Christianity, uh, most of them push John's writings, especially the book of Revelation, into the 90s A.D., 20, 20 to 25 years after 70 A.D. And, you know, quite a number of them also pushed the Gospel of John and his three epistles uh, into the, the 80s or 90s as well. And so uh, anybody who deals with the apostolic canonization theory automatically comes into conflict with traditional Christianity's uh, dating of the, the Johannine corpus. And so we're going to be dealing with that a little bit. Otherwise, we're going to come across real inconsistent when we start trying to defend all the books written before 70 A.D., but yet allow John, the apostle, to continue past 70 A.D. with his inspiration. Right. Uh, there's some serious problems that we need to deal with on that. And I want to talk about how John was martyred and the implications of that for the canon. As preterist, if we're going to believe that all the New Testament writings were written before 70 A.D., 
then what do we do with with Apostle John and his gospel and those first three epistles uh, that he wrote? There's a problem there in consistency because if, if we say that he lived after 70 A.D., then he still had inspiration, and he could have still written further books. And so for the preterist, there's a real problem saying John lived after 70 A.D., because it opens the door for futurists to say, well, if he was around after 70 A.D., he was still inspired. So there's no reason why he couldn't have written his five books after 70 A.D. So, so in order for a preterist to be consistent and be able to prove beyond a shadow of doubt that all New Testament books were written, especially John's, is to say that John must have died before 70 A.D., just like Peter and Paul and evidently the rest of the apostles. And we know for sure that Paul and Peter did. And so it would not be a problem for John also to have died during uh, the Neuronic persecution at the same time Peter and Paul did. And that's, that's the theory that I'm going to follow. And I know that flies in the face of an awful lot of people. In fact, when I wrote my uh, series on apostolic canonization for Brian Martin's uh, magazine, Fulfill Magazine, uh, I had a couple of people write me by email and hit me pretty hard with these questions. They said, uh, and I'm just going to read their question here, I find it curious that you appear to be swimming against the current in postulating that John died in the Neuronic persecution. Isn't a mainstay argument of preterists that John was supposed to remain alive on earth until Christ returned? And then my response to that is, well, it may be swimming against the current of Roman Catholic tradition, but it is in sync with Jesus' own words of prophecy regarding both James and John. Several Protestant commentaries have noticed the following statements of Jesus to the two sons of Zebedee regarding their martyrdom before his return. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through, or 22, verse 23, uh, Jesus answered, to them, and this is the occasion, of course, when uh, James and John's mother came with them to Jesus, and evidently James and John's mother was a sister of Jesus's mother Mary. So James and John were cousins of his. They probably felt that since they had a close family relationship with Jesus' mother, that uh, he would probably treat them as special and give them a special place in his kingdom when it came. And so that's, that's exactly what uh, Salome, uh, the mother of James and, and John, asked Jesus. They asked Jesus, would you seat my two sons on your right and left when you come into your kingdom? And, of course, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. And, and he says to James and John both, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink. They both said to him, we are able. And then Jesus said to them both, my cup you both shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared for by my father. Now, that clearly teaches that James and John would both die a martyr's death before he came in his kingdom, before the parousia. If you look at the context, it's clearly talking about their dying before the parousia, before he came in his, in his kingdom. And that's something that I don't think very many people have reckoned with. The, the Roman Catholic Church ignores that passage and tries to explain it away. Uh, and even Protestants try to ignore it because they really don't know how to deal with it because of this strong tradition that John lived beyond 70 A.D. It's interesting that most evangelical scholars agree that most of our New Testament canon was written before 70 A.D., but they don't always take all of them, especially the books of, of Apostle John. They, they try to keep the Johannine writings after 70 A.D., and the reason why is because they don't terminate the apostolic generation until the death of, of Apostle John, which they believe did not occur until A.D. 95. So this presumed longevity of Apostle John leaves the door wide open for a post-A.D. 70 date for all of the Johannine writings, including the book of Revelation. 
that's a real problem for us preterists. And so it would be to our advantage to see if, if Apostle John may have uh, died before 70, because if he did, that means all of his writings had to be written before 70. But this presumed longevity of John leaves the door wide open for a post-70 date for all of John's writings. That would mean that, that if the Gospel of John, for instance, or some of his epistles, uh, if they were written 25 years after 70 A.D., uh, that would be a problem for us. Uh, because it means that the gift of inspiration continued after 70 A.D. It would mean that that the perfect may not have arrived at 70 A.D. after all. So there's some real problems, that I think, that we preterists need to take seriously and look at more carefully than we have done in the past. This article defend the idea that the Apostle John died in the Neuronic persecution in A.D. 64 or 65. Thus, implying that all of the New Testament books, including John's writings, had to have been written before 70 A.D. I really think we need to look carefully at, at John, and especially because of the implications it has for uh, our writings of the New Testament. It's just very hard to prove that they were all written before 70 if you've got John still alive 25 years after 70 A.D. It just doesn't work real well. It's not very convincing to the futurists. So... What I want to do is look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23, and it's parallel in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 40. The mother of the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, asked Jesus to place her two sons on his right and left when he came into his kingdom. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking, and the you there is plural, you both you do not know what you both are asking. Are you both able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they both said to him, We both are able. And he said to them both, this is James and John both, he says, My cup you both shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, Jesus is very explicit that both of those two sons will drink his same cup. My cup, he says, you shall drink. It's not just a general, generic cup of suffering, but it is his specific cup that he is about to drink in Jerusalem, which is the cup of martyrdom and death. Uh, fascinating text, and that's why I believe John, in the end of the Gospel of John, where there was a rumor that went out that says that he would never die, he squelches that rumor right away and contests it and says, Jesus didn't tell me I would never die. He just told Peter, it's none of your business what happens to John, whether he lives and remains or whether he doesn't. It's none of your business, Peter. Uh, so John is very clear to point out that that Jesus did not promise that he would live and remain until his coming. In Matthew 20, as we've just read here, it was talking about when Jesus comes in his kingdom. We know that's a reference to 70 A.D. Salome, who is the mother of James and John, who is also the sister of Mother Mary, making Salome his aunt, the aunt of Jesus, comes to Jesus, and asked for her two sons, James and John, to be on his right and left. James and John were his cousins, and so it was not unexpected that his aunt would request that for them. But it's very interesting here that, that Jesus says, you're both going to drink this cup, and it's going to happen before he comes into his kingdom. The implication there in the text is clearly that when he comes with his kingdom, they would not live and remain until that time. They would die. They would drink the cup before he came with his kingdom. Very, very powerful statement there. And I don't think very many people have noticed that. The commentaries, they either notice it and deal with it, or they ignore it and try to sweep it under the carpet uh, because they don't like the implications of it. But there are some commentaries which advocate the idea that John would also die a martyr's death just like his brother James did in A.D. 44, as we find in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. 
All right, so Jesus says that they're both going to drink the cup of martyrdom, implying that they would not live out their full lives nor remain alive until his parousia, but instead would be cut short by martyrdom. James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod Agrippa I in about A.D. 44, according to Acts chapter 12. But when did John drink the cup of martyrdom? As we get a drum roll here on the suspense bills. Josephus, Antiquities Book 20, Section 200, mentions that James, the Lord's brother, and some of his companions there in Jerusalem. Now, if we look at the book of Acts, who was one of the companions of James in the city of Jerusalem? Well, Peter and John. Hmm. So Josephus mentions that James and some of his companions were arrested by Annas II in April of 62 A.D. during the three months between the end of Festus' reign as uh, procurator and the beginning of Albinus' procuratorship. Josephus says that James was killed by Annas II, but he does not say what happened to the others who were arrested at the same time. It's possible, and maybe even uh, highly likely, that John was, was one of those companions that was arrested on the basis of the historical evidence that I've read. But since John was a friend of the Annas family, and we know this because John himself, in his gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, which was written, I believe, just a year or two before this very incident that we're talking about in uh, 62 A.D., John's gospel says that he was a friend of Annas and Caiaphas' family. And this Annas II who arrested James is the son of the same Annas who was a high priest at the time of Jesus' arrest. And it says that John was allowed to go into the high priest's house because he was known to the high priest, which was Annas the father of this Annas II that arrested James in 62 A.D. Very fascinating. These are the kind of facts and relationships that historical reconstructionists just drool over. I mean, it, you, can, you can write a book or make a movie on this kind of stuff. It's interesting how John just lays that little fact out there in John chapter 18 that he was a friend of the Annas family. Now, how would that affect the arrest of John by Annas in 62 A.D. Well, it would affect it this way, because if you were a friend of the family of the leader at that time, you probably would get off the hook. You wouldn't be killed. You probably would be sent out of the country, and that's exactly what I think happened. I think this is the very time when John was exiled to Patmos in 62 A.D., when he was arrested along with James. James was put to death, but because Annas was a friend and known by Apostle John, and John was known by him, uh, Annas would not have killed him, would have sent him into exile. So he was out of the picture, out of the way, no longer would be a trouble to him there in Jerusalem. So I think this is when John was exiled to Patmos in the spring of A.D. 62. One of the things that we need to do here is to look at the flow of New Testament book, give you the list of all 27 of them, and, and tell you in which order they were written, and give you a, a date, or at least assign a, uh, a range of dates to each of those books. In Acts chapter 15, at the council in Jerusalem, uh, they produced a document which Paul and Silas took with them on their second missionary trip and delivered those uh, decretals from the church in Jerusalem. The first literary document that we know of for sure that was written by the apostles was that decretal document that was produced there at the council of Jerusalem, in, which was in about 49 or 50 A.D., it could have been that very council in Jerusalem, which was the uh, stimulus for the apostles to begin their literary activity. Now, a lot of this is spelled out in my First Century Events book, by the way, and I want to recommend all of our listeners uh, get a copy of that book from our website. Our website is uh, www.preterist.org. And... Uh, 
the name of the book is First Century Events in Chronological Order. That's where I give uh, a lot of good background historical information uh, about the, the transition period that we're looking at here. And I show when all those New Testament books were written, what the order of them was, what the date of them were, and how they relate to uh, the other events that were occurring uh, throughout that transition period. What do we do with Apostle John's gospel? It's radically different than the other three gospels. Yet, what is very interesting is that John does show some familiarity with some of the unique contents of Luke's gospel. Matthew and Mark do not. Luke shows no awareness of any of the contents, at least the unique contents, of the gospel of John. And so that points to the presupposition that John must have written after Luke. So that puts the Gospels in the same order we find them in our New Testament. That means that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the correct order in which those four Gospels were written. And maybe after Luke and Paul had already shipped out of Caesarea and been sent to Rome... Uh, John may have written his gospel at that point. And that's that's what I believe is the case. I, I put John's gospel right around 60 to 61 A.D. after Paul had already been sent to Rome. Now, the next three books, I think, were the three epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I, I really think that they were written very close to the Gospel of John, because it, if you notice, in the first chapter of First John, he opens it up with some statements that that are very, very, very similar to the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, suggesting that it was written pretty close together. So I would put John's Gospel and those first three epistles of John in 60 to 61 A.D., just before, I believe, he was arrested in Jerusalem at the same time James uh, being martyred, being thrown off the temple by the, uh, the Jewish priest. And that was in 62 A.D. at Passover. And I believe it was at that same time John was arrested. And here's why. In Josephus, he tells us that, that Annas II, who was the son of the same high priest, Annas I, who arrested Jesus... And you'll notice in John's Gospel, John mentions that John was allowed into the council chamber where the Sanhedrin was trying Jesus because he was known to the high priest. He was an acquaintance of Annas' family. And it is Annas' son, Annas II, who arrested James and some of his companions in 62 A.D. Now, he put James to death, but Josephus does not say what happened to those other companions. If John was one of those other companions, and we know from the book of Acts that John was probably still in Jerusalem at that time, uh, then most likely he was one of those who was a companion of James who was arrested at the same time. We have to wonder why John was not killed like James was. I think the answer to that is the very fact that John was an acquaintance and a friend of the family of Annas II. And so there's a good reason why I think John would have been exiled to Patmos at that very time rather than being killed like James was. John was uh, a friend of the family, and so he was sent into exile. That's what they did for their friends who were under a death sentence. They would exile them rather than kill them. It makes a lot of sense and puts a lot of facts in a sequence that would that would work historically. So that would mean that James's book and the book of Revelation, of course, uh, would have had to have been written somewhere in that time frame. James, of course, would have had to have been written in 62 or, or earlier. So if uh, John was arrested at the same time James was, and James was, was killed, and then John was sent into exile by Annas II. That means that John was in exile in Patmos sometime in the latter part of 62 A.D. That's almost two years before the Neuronic persecution. 
And if he was still in Patmos in 64 AD when the Neronic persecution broke out, uh, would have been killed by his Roman captors. I asked a guy who does tours to the island of Patmos. His booth was right next to ours at, at the Evangelical Theological Society a few years back, and he had maps of, of all of his trips that he was sponsoring to Turkey, and he had Patmos on there as one of his big tour location. I asked him, I said, now, was Patmos a Roman penal colony? And he says, most definitely it was. The island of Patmos was a place where they sent political prisoners of Rome to be guarded until they died, or until the Caesar under which they were imprisoned died, or in this case, until the high priest would have died. Now, Annas II did not die until two years after the Neronic persecution. John, would, if he was still in Patmos in 64 AD, uh, would have been killed by his Roman captors uh, as soon as they received word from Nero that all Christians were to be killed. And so I believe that that's what uh, the book of Revelation is alluding to because he, he says that in Revelation chapter 6 that the martyrs who were under the altar in the heavenly temple were crying out, How long, O Lord, will you wait to avenge our blood? And they were told to rest a little while longer until the full number of those martyrs was accomplished. And I think that's a hint that John was going to be one of those who would fill up that full number, certainly is including Peter and Paul who were killed during the Neronic persecution. And so the book of Revelation would have had to have been written before that final wrap-up. I think it was the Neronic persecution which finished the job of completing all the martyrs. So the book of Revelation was written before that, I think in, in around 62 A.D., right after John was exiled to the island of Patmos. And that's why I believe that several of our New Testament books, especially the last few that were written, have statements in them which show that they were familiar with the contents of the book of Revelation. For instance, the book of Hebrews, which was written right as Paul was being released from prison in Rome in 63 A.D., the book of Hebrews talks about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, the new heavenly city, and a lot of things that the book of Revelation is very explicit about. And that would only make sense if Paul was familiar with the book of Revelation. And that means that, that in 63 AD, when he wrote Hebrews, he must have had a copy of the book of Revelation already available to him. So that would put the book of Revelation written before 63 AD, which is exactly where I would put it just before Paul was released. And same thing with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter alludes to Babylon. He's writing from that city of Babylon. That's a direct allusion to the harlot city in the book of Revelation, showing that Peter evidently had access to and had read the book of Revelation. And so that tells you exactly when Peter wrote his first epistle. It was in 63 at the, at the very earliest, uh, after the book of Revelation had already been written. He already had access to it. That's a little bit of the historical reconstruction that I've done in this book called First Century Events. And, and I would, again, recommend our listeners to get a copy of that so that you can read all the details of how I reconstruct the history around these books. I want to see if we can get through the rest of our New Testament books. So we've covered several of Paul's writings up until his imprisonment. While he was in prison in Rome, he wrote four epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And those were written right near the end of his imprisonment in 63 AD, just before he was released. As we mentioned before, the book of Hebrews was written in 63 AD at the time he was released. So he sends that book out through his courier to inform the churches that he was headed in their direction as soon as he was released. And then after he had been released, he writes First Timothy and Titus. And then, as we mentioned before, First Peter was written about this same time as well because it makes reference to the book of Revelation. And it was written uh, before Peter was expecting to be killed shortly, like he mentions in Second Peter. 
at, at the time he wrote First Peter, he was not aware of any imminent danger to his life. And so that would be before 64, but it was after the book of Revelation was written. We can pinpoint First Peter as being written somewhere in 63 or very, very early 64 before the Neuronic persecution. And then we have Second Timothy written and Second Peter written, both of which say that their departure was at hand. They had been arrested, and they were about to be put to death. They knew their doom was certain, and they're, they're writing their final letters to the churches to tell them what's, what's happening. And I would put the book of Jude right there at the same time as Second Peter. Now, Don Preston and I have uh, discussed this issue. He's under the persuasion that Jude was the final letter of our New Testament, and it may have been, but he agreed with me that whichever of the two letters were the last one to be written, whether it's Second Peter or Jude, that both of those letters were written very close together because they share a lot of the same contents, and they show that they were familiar with each other. And it's hard to tell whether Jude is quoting from Second Peter or whether Second Peter is quoting from Jude or whether they're both writing at the same time about the same things. And it really doesn't matter to me, and, and Don says, you know, it doesn't matter to him either, because we both agree that they were written right there together just before Peter was killed in the Neuronic persecution in 64 right. A.D. And the reason why I would assert that Peter's was probably the last one written, because I see Peter's book as putting the capstone on the New Testament canon. He was the one who had the keys. He was the one who could bind and loose. And I believe that binding and loosing authority was canonical authority. And you'll notice in Second Peter chapter 3, he mentions Apostle Paul's writings. And he says that, that Paul in all of his writings speaks in them of these things that he had just mentioned in Second Peter chapter 3, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And so Peter acknowledges all of Paul's letters there and puts his stamp of approval on them and says that he considers them as inspired like all the rest of the inspired scriptures. That is a phenomenal statement when you really look at the implications of it. Peter was putting his stamp of approval. He was binding upon the church the authenticity and authority of the New Testament canon right there in that statement. And so that's why I would suggest that Second Peter was probably the last book of our New Testament. All of the New Testament books were written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In fact, I believe that the last two New Testament books, Jude and Second Peter, were finished up just before Peter died in the Neuronic persecution in 64 A.D. So I would place every one of our New Testament books before the end of 64, uh, before the beginning of 65. So that's a full year or more before war broke out in Judea. And that makes a lot of sense because Eusebius says that, that the church was warned before the war to get out of Jerusalem and that they actually did so before Jerusalem went to war. So uh, that would make a lot of sense, that the canon was already finished by that time, and they took their scrolls and scrammed out of there. Now, I want to deal more with the uh, collection of those writings, because we've pretty well covered the idea that they were all written before 70 A.D. What evidence is there in our New Testament that the apostles actually collected every one of the 27 books and had a complete collection of them, at least in Jerusalem? And that's the focus. So I'm not going to try to prove that every church throughout the Roman Empire had a complete collection of all 27 books. All that's necessary is that the church in Jerusalem, and specifically Peter himself, had access to a complete collection. And we're going to talk about that as we go through. Peter is the key guy, and we mentioned that in previous time, is that uh, the keys of the kingdom were given to Peter. 
Jesus gives uh, Peter the keys, and he says, And you have authority to bind and loose. Whatever you bind shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loose. So Peter was the key guy in this whole process. And I believe that authority to bind and loose was at least a reference to the canonization. Uh, Now, it probably included an awful lot more things, but at least one of the things that was included in his authority to bind and loose, I believe, was this canonization concept. Let's look at that, and and I think one of the things that we need to do in the process is to look at how Peter used those keys to open the door of the kingdom for uh, both Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. Uh, he was a key guy all the way through the book of Acts, and we're going to look at that. Uh, in Matthew sixteen nineteen, Jesus said to Peter that he would give Peter the keys of the kingdom so that whatever Peter bound or loosed on earth would be considered as bound or loosed in heaven by Christ himself. What were these keys, and what was this binding and loosing authority? Did it include canonical authority? I believe it did. The right to decide whether a written document was inspired and worthy of of classification as Scripture. Are there any texts in our New Testament which give examples of Peter using those keys to unlock the doors of the kingdom? And there are. There's a bunch of them, and we're going to look at them. Uh, Here's one of them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, in the meeting right after the ascension, uh, when the uh, apostles met to select a replacement for Judas Iscariot, uh, it was Peter who stood up and presided over that meeting to uh, to lead them into the selection of a replacement for Judas Iscariot. No surprise, it was Peter who took the initiative there on that occasion. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, on the day of Pentecost, who was the main spokesman on the day of Pentecost? Who opened the door for the Jewish people to come into the church? And how did the church begin? It was through the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. He used his keys to open the doors of the kingdom to the Jews first. In Acts chapter 3, verses 6, 12, and also chapter 4, verse 8, who was it who healed the lame man at the gate of the temple? Who was it who spoke to the crowds, who saw this miracle performed by Peter? After Peter and John were arrested for healing the lame man and preaching Christ in the temple, which one of them was the spokesman at their trial? You guessed it. It's Peter. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and so on. There is inspiration plain and simple, and the inspiration is one of the requirements for canonicity. The Holy Spirit filled them and spoke through them. So Peter is clearly using the keys that Christ had given him to open the doors of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 5, who was it that struck both Ananias and Sapphira dead on the spot for lying about how much they sold their property for? Peter, of course. Neither James, John, nor Paul performed the quantity of miracles, and they didn't do it first, that Peter did. Peter was the one, he was the first one that opened the door to those kinds of things. And certainly no pope of the Roman church has ever been able to duplicate the kind of miracles and the quantity of miracles that Peter did. Peter was absolutely unique on this. In Acts chapter 5, verse 15, Peter performed so many miracles of healing that people laid their sick along the sides of the street so that when he came by, his shadow might fall on them with the implication that they would be healed, even with his shadow just falling on them. Amazing power was uh, performed through Peter. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the apostles were arrested, it was Peter who was mentioned first as giving a defense before the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 20, when the apostles sent Peter and John down to Samaria to preach Christ to them, and Simon the sorcerer tried to buy that power from Peter and John, it was Peter who rebuked Simon and condemned him for trying to buy the gift of God. Here Peter and John opened the doors of the kingdom to the Samaritans. So we got to the Jews first, then to Samaria, and we're going to see Peter here pretty quickly open the door of the kingdom for the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. But in Acts chapter 9, Peter healed the lame uh, fellow by the name of Aeneas in Lydda, and he raised back to life Tabitha, who's called Dorcas, in Joppa. And here's the first case of one of the 12 
disciples, uh, raising someone from the dead. And it was Peter who did this first. Now, later on, Paul and maybe some others uh, raised some folks from the dead, but it was Peter who did it first. And very interesting. In Acts chapter 10, of course, is Cornelius. And uh, Cornelius was told by the angel of God to send for Peter to come and deliver a message to him. And here Peter is using the keys to open the doors of the kingdom to the first Gentiles without requiring them to become Jewish converts first. This was an exercise of his binding and loosing authority to extend salvation to the Gentiles without circumcision and law-keeping. As you know, that created a instant controversy in the church, which did not die down for almost 30 years. It, I mean, it really was a firestorm of protest by the Judaizers. It's a big issue in the church. In Acts chapter 12, verse 11, Agrippa arrested James, son of Zebedee, and put him to death in about 44 A.D. And when he saw it pleased the Jewish leaders, he had Peter arrested also, intending to have him killed also. But Peter was miraculously rescued by an angel at night and brought out of the prison so that he could continue his preaching. God was not through with him yet. He still had to exercise his keys to open the doors of the kingdom to a lot more people first. So God was not going to let him be martyred until it was time. And so we see him continuing his uh, ministry after that. But uh, on and on through the book of Acts, you see Peter using the keys of the kingdom to open the door uh, for all the people. In Acts chapter 15, the, the Jewish council there, or the Jerusalem council, uh, where they decided the uh, Jew-Gentile problem regarding the Gentiles coming into the church without having to be circumcised, it was Peter who was the first to take the leading role in the debate. Peter stood up and said, and so on. Uh, Peter opened the door again for the Gentiles to be accepted by the Jewish Christians as fellow heirs of the grace of life without circumcision and law-keeping. It was from this council, under the oversight of Peter and the other apostles, that there went forth decrees. In the Greek, that's the word dogmata, dogmata, uh, decrees to the Gentiles, relieving them of any responsibility to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses. This was definitely an instance of binding and loosing authority being exercised, and it was embodied in a written document composed by the inspired apostles under the leadership of Peter. This may have been the first authoritative canonical document composed by the apostles, but it certainly would not be the last. And it shows where the canonical authority resided. It resided in the mother church at Jerusalem is where that canonical authority resided. It did not reside in Rome. Rome usurped that authority. They had no right to take it because it was not given to them. Uh, Peter is the one who has that authority. And the church, Jerusalem church is the one that, that that authority was exercised within. This shows where the canonical authority resided in the mother church of Jerusalem, specifically in the hands of the inspired apostles there with Peter in the position of having the key authority to bind and loose. The above text show the leading role Peter played in the early days of the church. So Peter's using the keys, and uh, it's apparent in the book of Acts and Paul's epistles also that the early church viewed Peter as the primary authority among the apostolic leadership. Paul, you know, makes that point over and over that Peter was was one of the pillars in the church, if not the key pillar. In fact, he's the first one that, that Paul even saw face-to-face -face and got acquainted with and stayed with when he was in Jerusalem was Peter. And so uh, it's it's very clear that Paul was was counting on Peter as the, the source of authority. Um uh, I want to look at a couple more texts which illustrate Peter's use of his binding and loose authority to certify the inspiration and authority of Paul himself and the other writers of the New Testament. Uh, for instance, in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8, Paul testifies that Peter was directly authorized by Christ to take the gospel to the circumcised especially. And then he says that, and also Christ commissioned him, Paul, to take the gospel to the uncircumcised. And so that's a tremendous statement there. It's, it's very clear that Peter has direct authorization by Christ to take the gospel to the Jews. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, 
Paul lists the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. The first appearance that Paul lists was to Peter first. I don't know how many people have missed that point. I missed it until I was uh, reading through some of this. But that's, I think, very significant that the first person that the Scriptures list as Jesus' uh, appearances after he was raised was to Peter. Amazing. This is noteworthy. Christ appeared first to Peter, then to the twelve, and then to James and others. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter clearly claims to have that apostolic authority. Also see Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. In both of those books by Peter, he claims to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, one sent out directly by Christ with, with apostolic authority. And in Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, Paul went up to Jerusalem, the true mother church, not Rome, to become acquainted with Peter and to meet with him for 15 days. It wasn't to James or others. He met James while he was on that same trip, but it was to Peter that he went first. He had to get Peter's approval before he did any further evangelization among the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, on another trip to Jerusalem 14 years later, Paul submitted to Peter, James, and John the gospel that he was preaching for fear that he had been teaching in error. Paul here clearly recognized the authority of the Jerusalem apostolate as having the right to judge the veracity of his gospel. But James, Peter, and John extended the right hand of fellowship and approval of Paul's apostolic ministry. That was an exercise, I believe, of canonical authority by Peter and the other apostles to recognize Paul as their fellow apostle in the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. They used their binding and loosing authority to canonize Paul, but they were only binding on earth what had already been bound in heaven by Christ. And then finally, uh, this text, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Now, we're going to see this verse used an awful lot more in our studies in, the, in this week and next week and probably the week following. Second uh, Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. If you've got your Bible handy, you probably want to look at this one. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. As he says in all of his writings, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Think about the implications of that statement. How could Peter have all of Paul's letters and know that he had all of them if Paul was still alive writing? What's the implication of that? Implication is that Paul had already died at that point, so that Peter says, I've got all of his writings. Now, think what else that implies. He's got a complete canon. There in Jerusalem, Peter has a collection of all of Paul's writings. Notice what else he says. Peter pronounced all of Paul's letters as being on a par with the rest of the Scriptures. This is canonical certification language, and we'll be looking at that probably next week and the week following for sure. It's certification language, and Peter had the canonical authority to make such a pronouncement by making Paul's writings on a par with the rest of Scripture. This effectively canonized all 14 of Paul's epistles. The rest of the New Testament documents were automatically canonized by their connection to one of the twelve apostles. Peter, John, Matthew were of the inspired apostolic man. James and Jude were brothers of Jesus. Mark and Luke were tightly connected with Peter and Paul, respectively. Peter recognized every one of these writers as having been inspired by the paraclete and having the authority of Christ to write uh, under the supervision of the apostles, and specifically Peter himself. So that's a, a real quick survey of how Peter used his keys of binding and loosing to open the door of the kingdom, and also, I believe, to collect and certify the canon of Scripture. The authorship of Hebrews by Apostle Paul, I'm drawing from several sources. 
John Owen's introduction to the book of Hebrews in Calvin's commentaries. And John Owen takes the position that it was written by Paul, and he uses Second Peter chapter 3 to prove it, because Second Peter 3 refers to the new heavens and the new earth, and the old heavens and old earth being destroyed. And then Peter comes right back and says, now, Paul, in all of his writings, speaks in them of these things. Well, what are those things that he just talked about? The new heavens and the new earth. Well, look back through the 13 genuine letters of Apostle Paul and see if you can find any place where it talks about the new heavens and earth and the old heavens and earth. What book written by Paul speaks of the new heavens and new earth and the old heavens and earth? Well, the book of Hebrews does. And so... uh, John Owen makes a a real strong case based on 2 Peter 3 that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And there's many Reformed scholars who take that position, such as Peter Lightheart. The name of the book is The Promise of His Appearing, an Exposition of 2 Peter 3. But the best evidence I've ever seen to support the authorship of Hebrews by Apostle Paul is by David Trobish, and he's a textual critic, and he's done a lot of study, you know, on, on the different variations within the text. And he's got a book called Paul's Letter Collection, Tracing the Origins. In there, David Trobish makes the point that all the earliest collections that we have and complete collections that we have of Paul's writings are in codex form. And when we say codex, uh, we mean that it's a bound volume. It's much like a book. The codex developed back in the first century, uh, and the Christians were the first ones to take full advantage of that new format for moving from scrolls into a bound book volume type thing. And what they noticed is that from the first century onward, New Testament books were bound in three volumes. The first codex had the four Gospels in it, bound together, one book. And then the second volume was all of Paul's writings collected. And guess what was in every one of those complete collections of Paul's writings? The book of Hebrews. Every one of them. There's not an exception to that. Every one of them that has a complete collection of Paul's writings has the book of Hebrews in it. So from the first century onward, that the church believed that Paul wrote that. If you look at the final chapter of the book of Hebrews, in verse 23, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom if he comes soon I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Now, who was in Italy, had just been released from prison, and was going to travel with Timothy? I mean, that has Apostle Paul written all over it. I mean, I don't know how anybody can miss that. It's so clear why anybody would ever question that. Barnabas doesn't fit that. Apollos doesn't fit that. I mean, there's just nobody else that that fits except Apostle Paul. Let's get into the uh, discussion of the collection a little bit. How did they collect all these books together, and where was that collection? Did, Did the church in Antioch have a complete collection of all these books? What about the church in Ephesus? What about the church in Corinth? What about the church in Philippi or Thessalonica or Colossae, did they have complete collections? Well, you know, I've been interacting with Paul Anderson, who is a preterist, and he's a textual critic, and he's doing a lot of study on textual criticism, and shared a lot of insights with me on how the first century scrolls were written, how the codexes were put together, how they were copied and how they were collected by the church. And it's a fascinating study, and I would recommend anybody who's interested in the field of textual criticism to do a study of what they call paleography, uh, because it's very interesting to see how the New Testament writers wrote their books, how they were copied, how they were circulated, and we're going to talk about that here in this lesson. Since Luke's gospel uh, does not reflect any awareness of the unique material in John's gospel, uh, this this indicates that the John's gospel must have been written after Luke, and we know when Luke's was written. So that means that John's gospel was probably written before he was arrested and sent into exile in 62. 
So right in there in that 60 to 61 is uh, where we see the Gospel of John being written. Book of Revelation, of course, would have been written after he was exiled in 62, and I think it's probably very early in that exile, about 62, while Paul was still on trial in Rome. You know, we mentioned that we want to talk about how these books were, were written, how they were copied, how they were circulated, how they were collected, and we noted that uh, the churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire probably did not have a complete collection of all those books, but we know that the church in Jerusalem did. You know, Apostle Peter, as we noted in Second Peter 3, mentions the fact that he has all of Paul's writings there in his collection. And we know he probably had all the other apostles' writings, too, which were mostly produced right there in Jerusalem. We know there are some other letters that, uh, you know, Paul talking about uh, an epistle to the Laodiceans. Is this something that was just like, it was lost? Or is this something where, uh, you know, within the first 50, 100 years after it was penned, that they were like, yeah, you know, this just doesn't quite have the flavor of 1 Corinthians. So we're, we're just going to just let this one go to the side. Trobish, I think, addresses that real well. I mentioned his book earlier, Paul's Letter Collection, Tracing the Origins. And uh, David Trobish uh, is published by Augsburg Fortress Press uh, in 1994. Uh, Trobish makes the, the point that many writers who circulated writings among various places like the apostles did, they would leave a blank in their book. They'd say, to the church in R Rome, well... The word Rome wouldn't be there. There'd just be a blank space where you could write in, fill in the name in the blank to whatever church you happened to be at the time, and you would address them. And, and some people have found some ancient manuscripts that were like that, where they have that very thing. They have a blank there at the beginning where you can fill in the blank to whatever church the reader happens to be reading this in. He will fill in the blank uh, with their name. And so Trobish is under the persuasion that the book of Ephesians was that very kind of book. He says that it was a generic letter written for all the churches and that there was a blank in there at first in the original. And when he took that letter to Ephesus, the copyist there took it to their scriptorium and then they fill in the blank as they make a copy for themselves to keep. But they fill in the blank and make it a letter to them. And then when they took it to Laodicea, then they took that back into their scriptorium and made a copy of it, and they filled in the blank there for Laodicea. And so Trobish uh, suggests that perhaps that's what happened. Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 4 that he had books and parchments that he carried with him on his missionary trips, books and parchments. When he went to a church, they would take those parchments back into their scriptorium, they didn't have a copy machine back then. They had a scriptorium, and these scribes would handwrite real quickly while Paul was there and make a copy of his manuscripts that they did not already have. And so uh, this is the way those books were copied and circulated. And as you can guess, uh, when they're hurriedly making a copy of those manuscripts, they're going to make mistakes. And that's how all those variant readings crept in there under apostolic supervision. They didn't have time to, to go back and check them before he left and moved on. So those, those mistakes got in there. And it isn't Apostle Paul's fault. It's the copyist's fault. So back to this uh, collection and circulation uh, of these New Testament books. I think we've got just a couple of minutes. I want to wrap this up real quick here. Ernest L. Martin, in his Restoring the Original Bible, has argued for apostolic canonization on the basis of the Apostle John remaining alive until A.D. 95 and writing some of his books after A.D. 70, so that by the death of the Apostle John, the canonization process was complete. But my argumentation is that that will not work, because we have to have all the books finished before 70 A.D., and that Peter is the one who held the keys of canonical authority. He was the one who put his stamp of approval on all 27 books before he died in 64 A.D. in the Neuronic Persecution. So Peter was the key person, literally and figuratively, 
in this uh, role of collecting all the books and canonizing them. And it's not required that every church throughout the Roman Empire had a complete collection. All that's required for apostolic canonization to be correct is that Peter and the church in Jerusalem had a complete collection before 70 A.D., and that he certified that as canonical. We've already noticed in Second Peter 3 that Peter did, in fact, canonize all of Paul's writings, and it's an easy step from there to get the rest of the New Testament writings under his authority. So, you know, I think that's very important, and John must have died when the Neronic persecution broke out in 64 A.D., all right, so that pretty well wraps it up. I think the next two or three broadcasts will probably show how Peter was instrumental in collecting and certifying all of those books into a canon for us before he departed this life. Email me, you know, ask for the apostolic canonization document. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. Send us their questions, and we'll deal with them in the next broadcast.